Well, it's time to bring in someone who knows whereof they speak. Dr. Julia Snell is a lecturer in sociolinguistics at King's College London. So, Julia, is there actually any hard evidence that we still judge each other by the way we speak? I mean, obviously, regionally is one thing, but, but, but by the choice of words and expressions in terms of class. Absolutely. So what we find is that when people evaluate ways of speaking, these are social rather than linguistic judgments. So people are actually evaluating the imagined speakers of those varieties rather than the linguistic properties of the speech itself. And this is very much linked to social class. So one of the key findings of language attitudes research is that non-standard varieties of English, and in particular urban vernaculars like Glaswegian and Brummie um, and ethnically marked varieties, these are consistently rated low for traits like intelligence, competence, confidence, leadership. Um, and this, of course, is because ratings along these dimensions reflect the dominant social status of the so-called superior groups in society who tend to speak standard English with an RP accent. Yes, though on the other hand, it's interesting, isn't it, that the RP accent isn't necessarily the one. If you go into the world of commerce, as I'm sure you know very well, in, in talk centres, uh, they've spent a lot of money uh, researching these things, um, and you don't, when your television or your computer or whatever it is breaks down, you don't want to go to a call centre and hear someone like me, because you've, some people might feel afraid of my voice because it carries with it apparently <laughs> centuries <laughs> of authority and empire and so on. Absolutely, it's certainly not all doom and gloom for regional dialects. Yeah. Many regional dialects find themselves rated much higher than RP for things like trustworthiness, likability, friendliness, humour. Um, and so these kinds of varieties actually acquire cultural and in some cases economic capital. The Geordie dialect is particularly highly rated, being associated with authenticity, humour, honesty, uh, and this has certainly contributed to the commercial success of people like Cheryl Cole and Anton Deck. It's unfortunate for Cheryl, I suppose, that when she <laughs> took her particular brand of Geordie over to the uh, United States, the exchange rate she got on its market value was not so favourable. No, and I'm not sure that in America they have quite this phenomenon of, of you and non-you. It, it was in the 1950s that P Professor Ross, Alan Ross, wrote this article in which his basic premise was you can no longer judge someone's class by the amount of money they have or even where they live. The one identifier they have left is the way they speak, not necessarily the accent, but actually their choice of vocabulary. And he listed words, mm -hmm. quite specific words. So he would say, non-you, people would say mirror. And, and you people would say glass or looking glass. Um, and non-you people would say radio, and you people would say wireless. And all these things were identifiers of upper-class people. It basically meant they were actually really at the high end of English aristocracy. Um, and we now surely, in that sense, live in a different society. I mean, I know the Dowager Duchess of, of, of Devonshire, which sounds like a strangely <laughs> boastful remark, but uh, she's, she assured me that her grandson, who will one day be Duke of Devonshire, says toilet. Now, that is, that is the non-new word of them all. So clearly that's changing, isn't it, even within the, 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 the upper classes? It is changing. So, well, going back to the 19th century, the upper classes, of course, were reacting against the new rich. Uh, and one of the ways in which one could um, differentiate the new rich from the old was through the way that they speak. So if we think about social class in terms of economic position, unfortunately, wealth doesn't always bring with it social status or any kind of sense of social honour. So language was a way of differentiating. And I guess we still do it to a certain extent today. So we kind of 
sometimes look down upon the new breed of reality TV celebrities who might amount uh, massive amounts of wealth, but perhaps their cultural tastes are not uh, quite... Um, that's right. I mean, it is. It's, we always need someone to look down on, as Absolutely. it were. So there are people looking down on the only, only way is Essex, or they're looking down on the way gypsies dress for marriages, or, or whatever it is. There's a slightly unpleasant taint of snobbery in a lot of reality television, isn't there? There is. Um, and this is linked, of course, to the cultural stereotype of the chav as well. Yeah. Uh, so in Britain, we may not um, always talk in terms of social class, but we're quite good at finding other terms to talk about it. So we talk about chavs to try and other those beneath us in the social hierarchy. Um, yeah. and, 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 and while, exactly, while we, we can all look down on pikey chavs and say, oh, aren't they disgusting? Or we can be sympathetic to them and say, look, come on, that's just snob rank snobbery. They're just kids. It's how you behave that matters. Is, is he a kind chav? Is he a friendly, a law-abiding chav, an industrious one? Is he nice to his mother? That's the only thing that matters. Not whether he wears, uh, you know, a Burberry cap and, and um, strange white tracksuit bottoms and so on. Um, and it's very, very hard for us not to be put off by the sheer appearance and the verbal appearance of a person, isn't it? Yeah, uh, this is true, but often actual appearance and actual language use is different from what we perceive. So if you take the stereotype of the chav, this has been exaggerated for comedic purposes. So the character of Vicky Pollard in Little Britain, for example, yeah. and language is very much part of the social stereotype. So Vicky's language exaggerates the kinds of characteristics that we think are common to working class teenagers' speech. So Vicky's language is permeated with what we call discourse markers, mm. things like, yeah, right, but, like, anyway, which don't appear to add anything to the referential content of the yes. speech. What the Germans call flickwort, little, uh, little flick words. Absolutely, yeah. which actually yeah. do quite important work in real language, yeah. but which are made to seem inarticulate and incoherent. Um, her language uses lots of non-standard grammatical features and so on. So if we take actual research into teenagers' speech, this isn't really how they speak, but the perception that this is the case leads to these kinds of comedic exaggerations. Exactly, and it's fun. I mean, language is something you can play with, like music. Uh, uh, not every song follows the exact time signature all the time. Some of the greatest uh, engineers in pop music, let alone in, uh, in classical music, have, do extraordinary things with time signatures that people find very hard to keep up with and, 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 and really amazing. Burt Bacharach songs are famous for it. The time signatures change all the time. They don't stay in common time. Um, and that's, that's not wrong. Language is there to be played with and stretched and pushed to its limits and indeed enjoyed in the mouth. And young people have a skill at that without even knowing it, don't they, just as they do with music? They do. So I have an, uh, a recording, for example, of a group of nine-year-old working-class children up in Middlesbrough in the northeast, and they're having fun together in the school playground, and the particular brand of fun on this day is to steal one of the girl's shoes. Now, in order to get her shoe back, this girl doesn't say, can I have my shoe back, please, or even give me my shoe. She says, give us my shoe back, give us it, using plural us, yeah. where standard English would have me. Yeah. Now, this isn't because she's confused between the difference between me and us, between singular and plural. On most other occasions, she would use me, and she'd certainly use me in her writing. But on this occasion, as a girl who's not really part of this friendship group and who finds herself in a very difficult situation hopping around the playground, she uses us as a way to imply shared support from the group, as a way of kind of uh, yes. calling upon some sense of group solidarity and therefore increase the chances of getting a shoe back. Very good. I like that. But I'm, I'm still interested in this class thing because now I wanted to think about um, looking at it backwards. 
and there's been a history, it's been much understood, of how people have been almost suppressed by the minority superiority of the RP, BBC, Oxford, however you want to call it, public school accent, that has been the voice of authority for, for decades and certainly since for, through most of the 20th century. But then there's, there came a reversal after the war. The drama schools started producing extraordinary actors who were either Celtic like Richard Burton and uh, Peter O'Toole and Richard Harris or, or, or from Northern and proud of it like Tom Courtney and Albert Finney and film studies come out in which to be an actor you didn't have to sound like Tom Gielgud uh, you actually had a harsh you know voice where you came from and that carried on through the 70s and then suddenly it seemed to reverse again in the 80s when we all got very excited by Brideshead Revisited and suddenly suddenly we thought oh maybe it's rather nice to be upper class again but in the meantime uh, I know I've got nephews and things like that who go, who go to quite grand schools uh, and I occasionally go and sort of talk at schools and um, there's an odd sight if you go to somewhere like Eton College you know, we all sort of talk, you know, talk like this. It's really, sort of, you know, <laughs> bloody hell, is she? Oh, God. It's sort of, they don't think they were standing up a class at all. You know, just trying to keep it down. But they also dress as if they are in the ghetto somewhere in south-central Los Angeles because the music they listen to is hip-hop and uh, like, like young people everywhere. But they can't deny the fact that they're Etonians. And has the wheel come full circle now? Uh, should I, if I wanted myself to be more successful as a broadcaster, should I soften the slightly obvious public school articula articulation that come out of my mouth and so look now listen come on you know so a bit more a little bit more like that look there's lot of stops that uh, that uh, Jenny Blair was fond of doing Sh should I do that well I think you're right that um, received pronunciation is perhaps evaluated slightly differently today so it has kind of negative conno connotations to do with uh, elitism exclusiveness inaccessibility mm. um, which therefore some people modify the way they talk and you mentioned Tony Blair for example so a politician can now modify their accent they can throw in a few glottal stops in order to try and convince the electorate that actually they're not very upper class they're really just one of us and therefore they can talk on our behalf but the public are pretty savvy and often they will pick up on these performances uh, and negatively evaluate them as inauthentic so it's a very fine line to walk I think and um, I think perhaps if you started talking like that Stephen the public would uh, smell a rat. <laughs> I think they probably would I fear that's true so is there such a thing if you are British English as sounding classless I'm not sure that there is a classless voice. I mean, uh, we talk about, or people, especially in the media, have spoken about estuary English and the idea that this is somehow takes up the middle ground between Cockney on the one hand and received pronunciation on the other. But actually, some of the features of estuary English, things like glottal stops and what we call L vocalisation, so saying, for example, milk instead of milk, yeah. um, these are actually features that we might associate with a modern RP. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not so sure that there is a truly classless variety. And just before the letters flood in, because there's nothing a radio for listener likes more, um, uh, where do you stand on the H issue? Do you, think, do you think that in 20 years' time it will be perfectly normal to hear and that's uh, also available on BBC HD1? I know, even as I say it, I can hear people squealing with horror at the idea of H. 
Well, I think they are going to squeal with horror because I think I would say H, uh, but this perhaps reveals uh, my background as uh, not being from a, a middle-class uh, community. So, But that's interesting because um, this is not a criticism of you, but you're aware that if you were to look into a dictionary, there is no such word as H. There is a, there is a word H, which is the that letter of the alphabet, uh, uh, and it's spelled A-I-T-C-H. So... As, as an academic and one who works in language, you would prefer the natural way you speak growing up and from where you come from to override um, what is, in fact, if you like, um, a, a simple fact that the word is age. I think it's absolutely OK. I think language is an important part of our identity and part of my own identity, as well as the fact that I'm a university lecturer, is that I'm from a working class community in the northeast of England. And that is part of who I am. Um, in terms of dictionaries, of course, dictionaries codify our language, but they're always going to be one step behind what's actually going on out there. They'd have to work pretty hard to keep up. Yeah, um, that's the point. I was hoping you'd say that. If the word H isn't in the dictionary, that's not the fault of the speaker who uses it, because there are millions who do. It's the fault of the dictionary makers who haven't yet put it in there. Absolutely. And um, as a linguist, what I like to do is describe what's going on in the language rather than necessarily prescribe how people should behave linguistically. Yes, it's a strange thing. But with language, somehow there will always be people who believe there is a right and a wrong. And it's... no matter how many professors, no matter how many lexicographers, no matter how many linguists and philologists they listen to whose profession and passion like mine is language, telling them there is no right and wrong, they'll always say, yes, there jolly well is, and they'll write books about it. And they'll often be called John Humphreys or Lynn Truss. <laughs> well, we live in a standard language culture um, and where virtually everyone subscribes to the idea of correctness. Yeah. So one linguistic form is right, another is wrong. People believe this is just common sense, that it's an inherent part of language. Of course it isn't. As speakers, we confer prestige onto linguistic varieties. Yes. And we tend to confer prestige onto those varieties considered to be associated with the higher social classes. We're also not stuck. I mean, the fact is, it's like clothes. I'm wearing, a, not wearing a suit and tie today. I'm in the radio studio. I'm then going off to do a TV programme, which I will have a costume laid out for me. Um, but if I were going to, I don't know, some reception for a charity or something, I would put on a suit and tie. Um, and I'm sure you, if you were with your family at home, would speak in, a, in even more of a northeastern accent using familial words. People can change their, the, the way they speak as they change their dress. It's just a question of politeness, what's appropriate, isn't it? It's not as if one's got fixed in one vo vocal mode all times. Yeah, language is a stylistic resource, just like modes of dress are resources that we can use to continually construct who we are or who we'd like to be. Um, so yes, here today, being interviewed for BBC Radio 4, I'm no doubt speaking very differently than I would do back home in Middlesbrough with my family. And while I'm not consciously orienting to social class when I do that, I am consciously adopting a style of speech that's felt to be appropriate to the situation. Yeah. And the style of speech appropriate to the BBC is formal standard English. Yes. Um, yes. A, a style associated with the social elite. <laughs> Does it depress you then that, um, uh, that there are still people out there who offer lessons to those from the regions in how to speak in, you know, receive pronunciation in BBC English. Do you think that that's a, a depressing thing? The problem is, I think, when people perceive that in order to speak RP or to speak standard English, you have to eradicate, you have to erase yeah. your own regional variety. And this is not true. And this happens in school where the assumption is that to teach children standard English, one has to get rid of yes. their natural ways of speaking. And it simply isn't true. It's one of the awful fallacies of the modern age is that one 
one thing automatically must replace another. In other words, if, if chicken tikka masala is available, that means that there's no such thing as, as Yorkshire parking anymore. The fact is, you've, you've enriched the culture by yeah. bringing something in from somewhere else. You haven't, you haven't pushed the original culture I, I, you know, out. Yeah, so let's make sure that everybody gains a maximally rich experience of linguistic diversity. Here, here, here.